Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. The bear with me here, guys. This one's this one's great. Deficit, sit, sit. Oh, he's gone. Edition. Get it? Because it's like a dog who's yeah, run yeah, away. No, kind of like a deficit. Do you get it, it? Got it. Yeah. Pretty funny, eh? <laughs> anyway, I'm Emma Graney, your your idiot host, <laughs> and with me in the studio today here at the Edmonton Journal, we have health reporter Keith Durant. And good morning. Good morning. We have city columnist Paula Simons. Good day. And I'm not tired of it yet. That'll be the last one, I think. <laughs> I don't think it will. <laughs> and we have legislative columnist Graham Thompson. Good morning. So I, I, I need to know, though, because you decided that Stuart Thompson should be named Tomo. Tomo, yeah. What is Graham Thompson going to be? He's Tomo. <laughs> <laughs> He's Tomo G. Okay. Tomo G. Just so, just so we'll all be clear. I support this fully. <laughs> just like last time. <laughs> yeah. My mom called me Tomo G, which is taking really? me back. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> He's shaking his head. People are lying to me this morning. I don't know what's real. I've only had three hours sleep. Anyway, so today we're going to be speaking about developments in health contracts and uh, maybe even do- a little bit about doctors swimming in cash. Premier Rachel Notley, who is preaching to the choir at a Unifor convention. And, of course, our whopping $10.9 billion deficit. Ooh. Hooray! So I thought we'd start off uh, with the health side of things. Oh, all right. last yeah. week. You ready yeah. for this? Yeah, really get them right at the start huh, exactly. with the exciting like, stuff. Hook them yeah. in. Yeah. Hook them in. So tell us what's happening on the front of, um, of health over here. Well, there was a couple of things this week. So um, one of the stories we published on Monday uh, has to do with medical fees. And there's some, been a couple of reductions to uh, some medical fees. And this is potentially a test case for reducing some further fees. Uh, So I have to give a bit of a history lesson here. Uh, Back in 2013, uh, the government and the Alberta Medical Association were engaged in a really long, bitter dispute over doctor compensation. They eventually settled on a seven-year deal. uh, And as part of that deal, they created something that didn't get a lot of publicity called the Physician Compensation Committee. And the idea behind this committee was that they could take a kind of deeper look at some very complicated issues around doctor compensation And at the end of the day, they'd make a decision because the government has one vote, the AMA has one vote, and then there's a third and deciding vote uh, from an independent chairman, and his vote is final. And so you avoid gridlock. You just kind of get, you get a decision at the end of the day. So over the last three years, that committee has been doing some work. And the question that they've been looking at primarily is, are there some fees that doctors charge that are overvalued or overpriced? And it's been the government's contention that there's certain procedures like cataract extractions that are overpriced because the technology has changed. They say they're easier and simpler to do, but the fee hasn't changed in more than 10 years. And so they say that needs to be reduced. The committee looked at that and decided at the end of the day um, that there are four fees that they think are worthy of reducing a little bit, including cataract extraction and some other procedures that affect radiologists and ophthalmologists primarily. So that that's one of the main things that, that happened this week. And, you know, ophthalmologists for a long time, when they, when they publish the list of who are the best compensated physicians, ophthalmologists are usually at or near the top of that list, uh, in, in part because of cataracts, but but other procedures as well. I mean, I guess, you know, I've never wanted to be an ophthalmologist. It's not that it's easy work, but I think there's long been a sense that some specialties, that the compensation is out of whack, that ophthalmologists make so much more than, say, family practitioners or uh, psychiatrists or other kinds of surgeons. So it's interesting. I haven't seen a lot of pushback 
from from people about the idea of reducing some yeah, of people these fees. Don't, people don't seem particularly concerned. I mean, it is your health, right? Like, why would you be concerned, I guess, particularly if you're not paying out of pocket about how much it's costing? Right, yeah. So there, there was a couple of things with that. The, I mean, I didn't get the ophthalmologist on the phone. They just refused to return any well, calls. Well, I, I don't imagine they're happy. They're not happy. And the radiologist did push back a little bit and say, you know, they, they thought this was a, a bit unfair, uh, though they're willing to live with the decision for now. But the worry has been that if, they, if the fees go down too low, then you will see a bunch of radiologists and ophthalmologists leaving the province to go to more lucrative jurisdictions. Well, somewhere where the fees haven't been reduced, apparently. But uh, I thought I thought our doctors were the yeah, best the compensated in the country. Well, this yeah. is where it gets complicated. So this is the second piece of news this week. There was some new statistics from the Canadian Institute for Health Information. And there's two relevant pieces for Alberta in there. So one of the statistics that the Kaihai tracks is gross payments to physicians. This is the, the payments they get before they have to pay for overhead. And in the seven years that Kaihai has been tracking this, Ontario has been the highest. This year, for the first time, or I guess it was last year's statistics, Alberta actually vaulted into the lead. So our doctors, on average, earn the most in gross payments. So that's one thing. The second thing, and probably more relevant to the Alberta government, is that the actual total payments we've paying to our physicians surpassed three billion for the first time last year, went up eight point two percent. Wow! Yeah, it, it's an moly. unsustainable number by far. Part of that is fees increasing in general, not ophthalmologists and radiologists apparently, but fees increasing a little bit for doctors. But the bigger thing is that there's so many more doctors that have joined the province, about a 20% increase in the last five years. Those doctors are now serving patients, which is a good thing, but uh, you have to pay them. And that's the reason that, uh, that the costs are going up so much. And there isn't a clear idea of how you get this under control. That's the thing that the government really needs to get under control, down to like 2% a year instead of 8 You know, and, and this is a perennial problem. I wrote a piece years ago that looked at the fact that back when Nancy Bitkowski was health minister, before she was Nancy Macbeth and the leader of the Liberals, back when she was the conservative health minister, she was part of a big national conference of health ministers from across the country. They came up with this great plan to minimize costs to the healthcare system by capping the number of seats at universities for medical school. They figured if they just reduced the number of doctors, that would save money in the healthcare system. Good it idea. It turned out to be not a good idea. What? It turned out to Shocking. be a very, very bad idea. But you can see the, the appeal of that kind of reductive thinking. Well, if we just have fewer doctors, then we'll pay fewer doctors without realizing that, well, you're going to have more people and uh, more aging people, and they're going to need physicians, right. and the demand for physicians is not going to go down the way you can make, you know, there is no price signal that's going to make people go to the doctor less, especially if they're not paying, as you say. No, and they'll go to the emergency room instead, which actually costs more in the end. Right. But then this still plays into a narrative, we'll get into another issue is... Um, the deficit. I know I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Oh no, I was actually, that was going to be my segue. The segue. So it's a case where the narrative is, you know, we pay too much for doctors to teachers and nurses and whatever in, this, in the province. So this is a narrative from conservatives saying the government has to cut back spending, it's out of control, and one area we're spending a lot of money on is public sector. Okay, so given that we have segued across to the deficit, there was a hundred million dollars change, wasn't there? In health, there's an increase of a hundred million dollars. But the, when we saw what the, a terrible thing compared with the rest of the yeah, deficit. like we saw the what is first, the deficit now? It's ten point nine billion dollars this year, whoa. which is a record by far. The government released the first quarter fiscal update, which is the first three months of the year. 
of this new 2016-17 fiscal year, and the numbers in there are just abysmal. Records all over the place, and none of them are good. We have one small bright light, and that was the price of oil went up a little bit. We got $700 million more this year, we figure. But then you lose $900 million in corporate taxes. The deficit's going to be $10.9 billion this year. It's not just that. Uh, growth is shrinking. Uh, we had a recession last year, recession this year. It was 3.7% uh, drop last year, the 2.7% this year. It may grow next year. It's only because it's so low this year, it's going to go up in comparison to the, to the last two years of recession. Also, the government's borrowing $7 billion for day-to-day wow. -day operations. Yeah, that's stunning. That's that just that to keep stunning. the lights on. Yeah. And you know, this is the first time in 20 years a government has had to borrow money in Alberta to keep the lights on due day to day. Now, this is, like, this is paying for salaries, paying for doctors, paying for nurses and teachers and whatever. So the government's not just borrowing money to build things, it's like hospitals and schools, it's borrowing money to keep them open. And it's a huge amount of money. And these are all records in this one little document. This is the NDP uh, trying to explain how spending money is a good thing to keep the economy going. Uh, but it's going to backfire at some point because this is so much spending and the government's not doing really much to try and control spending. I've seen two really fascinating graphs this week that Trevor Toome, who's an economics professor at the University of Calgary, has been sort of circulating on Twitter. One of them showed adjusted for inflation and adjusted for population, Alberta's resource royalty revenues this year are the lowest that they have been since the 1960s. So they're not they're not on paper lower than they were uh, during the national energy program and the energy price collapse after that, but in constant dollars and adjusted for the size of the provincial population, our revenues have never been lower. And that isn't just because of soft oil prices, it's because natural gas prices collapsed under, you know, during the time that Ed Stelmack was premier and have never recovered. So it's true that Ralph Klein balanced the budget when oil prices were no higher than they are today, but he had access to all kinds of natural gas revenues that evaporated a long time ago. So this government is facing a uniquely awful moment in, uh, in oil and gas prices. You know, one can argue whether their response to that has been prudent, but there is no doubt that they have less coming in in real constant dollars than any conservative government before them. The other thing that I found really fascinating was he, he put out a graphic last night that showed that staggering though Alberta's debt numbers sound to our virginal ears, we still have the lowest debt ratio of any Canadian province by a huge margin, and which this is, is this awful is debt, as well. This is debt to GDP. De right? yeah, 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 debt to GDP. It's 10.25%. Yeah. The government did put in a law last year saying it would never go above 15%, right. <laughs> and they quickly scrapped that law. And then the question this week of Joe Sisi, uh, the finance minister, was from the media, how high are you willing to go in terms of the debt to GDP ratio? And he would not answer that he question. He would not. It was, it's like the opposite of, of limbo, not how low will you go. It's like how high will you fly? I saw a really sobering story today that said that 60,000 highly trained people, engineers, uh, uh, geologists, uh, scientists who worked in the, in the oil patch sector have lost their jobs in the last few months. 60,000. These aren't people who are, you know, driving trucks or pumping oil. Oil. These are people who had very well-paid office jobs who are who are now looking. You know, these are the kinds of jobs that they thought would be safe for life, 
who are now looking for work. Uh, and I think in Edmonton, we're still being cushioned from the effect of this. But I don't know what the magic answer for the province is, because under Klein, the magic answer was to dramatically slash public sector spending. That turned out to be not great long-term economics, and especially for the capital region. And that, I mean, that is Joe Cece's argument right now. I know I said to him, at what point do you actually stop spending? At what point do you take another look at your plan in which you have committed to just keep putting more money and more money and save those frontline jobs for nurses and teachers, etc.? At what point? $20 billion deficit, $25 billion deficit, $50 billion. At what point do you actually, you know, perhaps reevaluate where the NDP stands and where Alberta is right now? Now, just going back to Paula's point, you're right. The narrative right now from the government is uh, Klein cut, and he cut too deeply, made things worse. Uh, and so they're not going to cut. But the, the thing, of course, with Klein, the price of oil rebounded, and he was a hero because all of a sudden, well, the price of natural gas. You're right, Paula. Back then, it was natural gas was the big money maker. Now it's well, it was oil, uh, bitumen actually. But so the NDP is saying we won't cut, we won't make things worse. But these numbers are going to start uh, bouncing back at them. The Albertans are a fickle lot. They want governments to spend a lot of money. Yep. Keep the deficits low. Yep. Have surplus money, and no taxes. Yeah, and and low low taxes and no provincial sales tax. We right. don't want to pay for anything. Yeah. Right. But then when things start going sideways, uh, you know, deficits start going up, all of a sudden they get angry at the politicians that they elected in. And in the past, we've seen them uh, punish politicians. They did not defeat the PCs, but under Getty, they, he lost his seat in 1989. Ed Stelmack, after the 2008 collapse in the, the world economy, he was more or less he was forced out. And so you, you go forward, and Albertans have a way, one way or the other, of punishing politicians for events that are beyond their control, because they, they blame them for a lot of the things that the voters voted in in the first place. That's right. When Jim Prentice suggested that one should look in the mirror, that didn't go very well for him. Oh, neither. no. No, no. <laughs> I was in Saskatchewan at that point. I think I heard the collective bottles being smashed uh, from across the border. <laughs> It is interesting, though, like the, the Trevor Tomb graphs are, do sort of provide a, a dose of, of reality and fact that maybe we're not as bad off as some other provinces. But Graham is right. The politis, politics of this are quite jarring, right? A $11 billion deficit, $7 billion just to service the day-to-day -day operations. I think I saw another statistic out there that we're paying now a $1 billion a year just to service the debt. These are very jarring figures that Albertans are not used to. And the government, as, as I think you asked uh, Joe Sisi, you know, when do you face reality? When do you, um, you know, what's your plan to get out of this? Because their job creation plan right now doesn't seem to be working. Um, diversifying the economy, that's their other answer to this. That doesn't happen overnight. And so we're not looking at an oil price rebound anytime soon either. So I, I just, I think at some point the government has to say, okay, here's the plan. And right now it's, we're just going to stick to it. And I, I don't think... I think that's going to be a difficult sell uh, coming very, very what, quickly. What they here. need to happen is the price of oil to go up, obviously, or get a pipeline built. In the next two years, two and a half years to the next election, 2019, if they can get a pipeline approved, not built, but even just approval of some kind of pipeline project, that's going to help the NDP tremendously, I think, because they'll be saying, we did things differently on the environment and we actually got something, a payoff. But how quickly will that actually pay off? I think that's still years to get it actually built. Oh, yeah, and right. then, the I mean, optics are great, though. I the optics, yes. Get, getting the approval is going to help them. 
you know, if, if we have a federal government saying, yes, we're going to build or expand the Kinder Morgan pipeline uh, under the NDP watch, that's going to help them, I think, the NDP here in, in the province. Because otherwise, other than the price of oil going back up, I don't know what's actually going to help them politically. Not that one would pray for a, you know, conflagration in the Middle East that would take the lives of thousands of people. But, you know, a good civil war in Saudi Arabia, that'd fix us. That, that <laughs> we, we, you know... That, that'd uh, be Paul, cool. Yeah, Paula Simon's fixing economic, <laughs> uh, fixing but, economic you know, problems but, but, since 2016. But, that, but you know, that no, is the, that right. is the That's problem. That's the kind of dramatic with, thing you would need. But that is the need. problem with an economy that is tethered mm. to one volatile resource price. I mean, we all know that get oil prices are artificially no, low right now because of the actions of the Saudi government. I mean, this isn't about world economics. This is about geopolitics. Thanks, and OPEC. There, and there is Jess. nothing, there is nothing <laughs> that Joe Sisi can do about that. You know, an Al-Qaeda coup in Saudi Arabia, that rescues us. Other, other than that... We, we don't want that for no, the record. We don't, no, for the record, Paula is not suggesting that, uh, that that is what we want. Paula is pointing out the tough reality that uh, we do not set the price of oil. Going back to the numbers on the numbers this week, Tuesday from the Q1 report, that's playing out also um, against the government raising taxes, the carbon taxes coming, and the raising the minimum price, uh, minimum wage. Uh, these are all good things in the sense of you got to fight climate change, absolutely. you got to help people who are at the lower end of the economic uh, spectrum. When you're raising taxes next January on carbon, it means you'll see the increase in the price of the pump. You'll see an increase in your heating bills. This is, even though you'll be getting checks if you qualify for lower income, you'll be getting checks every few months from the government. But Every time you pump your car full of gas, every time you pay your heating bill, you'll be seeing the price of carbon has gone up. And if we're still in a recession next year, that's going to play against the government. No matter, even if you think we've got to fight climate change, we've got to help people in the low end of the spectrum when it comes to jobs, this is going to play against the government because people will be thinking, even those who support the government will be thinking, are you pushing ahead too far with your agenda on taxation? Yeah, it's going to be tough. And at the meantime, we're still cleaning up Fort McMurray. Uh, I mean, the the budget also took a big hit. Uh, you know, part of that deficit. Half a billion dollar hit. You know, that's you know to fix to rebuild Fort McMurray to deal with uh, flooding and and hail damage uh, in central and southern Alberta. Uh, you know, the national the the natural disasters that Alberta has faced this year have been substantive, and you you know you can't cut that. So at a certain point. Are Albertans going to have to say, you know what? We said we didn't want cuts, but maybe we do want cuts. I don't know, though. I mean, this week in Edmonton, uh, you know, there was a whole discussion about putting a quarter billion dollars into Northlands. And when the city balked, you know, people said, well, you know, maybe the province will provide the money. And I thought, <laughs> Lol. I thought that's what I thought. I thought wow. Um, no, I don't think the province is going to give you a quarter billion dollars to fix up Northlands. That is not a thing that is going to happen right now. People, people need to get a little grip on reality, not just not just New Democrats. It's funny you should uh, you should mention that because during the press conference with Joe Sisi, um, the CBC reporter Kim Trasty said, "Look, uh, municipalities are hurting right now because they're not getting the money to pay their property taxes. Are you considering giving them a break?" I, I 
Joe CC looked incredibly annoyed with that question. He said, look, Kim, I've got a $10.9 billion deficit. I can't be doing these kind of cuts that you're talking about. I can't be giving people a break. What? It, the implication was, what? What? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Although if you listen to Rachel Notley and her speech in Ottawa this week, everything's fine. Oh, yeah. Everything's great, right? Everything's great. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that was, that was what we were going to talk about next. Look oh, all right. There you go. <laughs> oh, Segway <laughs> extraordinary. Segway. Yeah. So Rachel Notley did, of course, um, get up and talk in front of a very friendly crowd at uh, the Unifor Convention in Ottawa. Justin Trudeau was keynote speaker in the morning and she was keynote speaker in the afternoon. It was a very rah, rah, rah kind of speech. Few moments of standing ovations there. Yeah, what do we what do we think the general kind of message from that speech was? Graham, you're watching well, it as no, well. Well, yeah, they were. Her speech was aimed at the union crowd, and what the underlying message she was trying to get across was, you know, play to the audience, but plead with them for support for pipelines. So she was saying to them basically, <clears throat> you know, she was re- reliving her glory days, 2015 election. She won. She slammed the conservatives, uh, you know, both big C and small C conservatives in Alberta. Uh, to me, she went over the top in some of her rhetoric. Having said all that, though, but the bottom line in her mind, I talked to her office about this, was she was asking for support. And she was saying, look, we're doing better on the environment in Alberta. We are being slammed right now by low oil prices. We need to get more pipelines to, to um, Tidewater, that use that term. And she was saying that because getting more pipelines to Tidewater, we get more oil to market. That's good for the economy for Alberta and for Canada. And she put it in the context of people just like you working in Alberta who have families, raising children, need the work. It's not only just good for Alberta, it's good for the entire country. So she put it in terms of uh, context of uh, middle class workers like you rely on these pipelines. Let's work together to get them built. And I think it's it's important to note when the NDP had their convention here and it was the whole leap manifesto time, that was not a message that resonated with a lot of the New Democrats who were in that room. I suspect she had a much more sympathetic hearing at a Unifor meeting full of workers who work as opposed to thinkers who think. Yeah, I, I would hope so. <laughs> um, but I, I just find, fair enough, like, but she's trying to, to get pipelines built, as I mentioned earlier on, That'd be one of the things that could actually control. Like we, we can't control the price of oil, but governments can control getting pipelines to, I hate the term tidewater, to, to ports, to ship it overseas. So I think that this is the, the narrative, to use that term again, that she's using not only here, but across the country. And will it play? I don't know. We'll see what actually happens with the pipeline hearings. But right now we have the uh, National Energy Board pipeline hearing uh, on Energy East going across the country. We have another sort of secondary set of hearings on the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Um, so this is a narrative that they're hoping because they, they feel they got one chance here to, to actually make things better. And everything is aimed towards that. And she went on at great length about the province's climate change plans and how they're doing more to, to reduce emissions. And that's to try and convince other people outside of Alberta across the country that we deserve the social license to get pipelines built. We're being better to First Nations and we're doing better things on the environment. But one of the interesting bits actually um, during that, uh, you're right with the Leap Manifesto thing, Paula, I think you made that point earlier because it was something that pipelines were not received well. They were not received well at all during the during the National NDP convention. But up there, that actually got a round of applause when she did bring up pipelines maybe I'm just naive I wasn't expecting it but it did it got a, it got a fairly impressive round of applause so 
I guess we'll see where they go from here. Well, and it's one of those one of those interesting conundrums about the new Democrats and their party base because they've always been a kind of an uneasy, sometimes yoking together of those you know blue collar working interests and the more rarefied um, you know sort of intellectual you know uh, social Democrats uh, who don't always have the same perspective and don't always have the same self interest. So. You know, if Notley can appeal to that part of the NDP base effectively, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, the NDP are still in the midst of their national leadership search. You know, I don't think Rachel Notley is interested in being the national leader of the NDP, but certainly when she comes out and speaks like this, it points out a historic divide within the New Democrat family. Did you guys see this morning about Stephen Harper? The news about Stephen, Stephen Harper, Harper he's yes, leaving he'll be his stepping seat. down. And so that will mean a by election in Calgary. That's going to be two by-elections in Calgary between Stephen Harper and Jason Kenney. Calgary's just heading. You know, right. you are assuming Jason Kenney's going to eventually step down. Well, I am. I, you're right. I did take him at his word. Perhaps I should not do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but to me, this is one reason why he's keeping his salary as an MP. And uh, well, maybe I'm wrong. It just seems to me um, he's saying I'm committed to being running for leadership of the PCs, but I'm staying as a member of Parliament until October 1st when the race begins. Fine. I'm a bit more skeptical. I'm wondering if this is a way of him hanging on to his job over the summer. He's testing the waters around Alberta, right? It's not, he's committed to it as long as it works out. And over the summer, he'll see, in fact, he'll get a, a really good sense from the ground. Can he do it? And if he thinks in October 1st, you know something, I don't, I, this is not going to work. He can say to them, yeah, you know, I'm going to, I give it a shot. I've decided now not to do it. And he goes back to Ottawa as a member of parliament. Well, all those people whose couches he slept on <laughs> around rural Alberta, I don't think will be impressed. All the miles he put on his Ram, not his, his Dodge Ram. Ram his I know, Ram. he's yep. got a seven-year industry loan on that thing. You know, what's he going to do with it? They're not going to fit it in Ottawa. It's not going to fit into parkades. You know something? You're right. You've completely undermined my <laughs> arguments. <laughs> That he is then 100% committed to this no matter what. <laughs> but, but, but it's interesting, you know. I mean, the Wild Rose is certainly um, very keen to spin a narrative, since we're on narratives today, that Brian Jean is drawing way more people on his, uh, you know, his provincial tour than Kenny is drawing on his. Now, I, unlike Emma, I have not actually been out in the field to witness this. I mean, Brian, Brian Jean actually had something happy ha happen to him this week. He got married. Yay. There are lovely Aww. photos. Brian Jean, who's had a very... He's wearing a very dapper suit with a bow tie. He's had a, he's had a really difficult few months. It was I, I was actually quite heartened to see Everyone loves love, Paula. Everyone loves love. Well, the thing is, you know, going back to comparing the two tours, Jason Kenny's gone around just meeting people in coffee shops, whereas Brian Jean is actually organizing town hall meetings, which may explain why you have <laughs> 10 at 1 and 100 at the it's other. It's a fair point. Right? Fair point yeah. uh, but having said all that, um, I think that, you know, of course, Brian Jean is fighting back in a very subtle way. Uh, they're not overtly attacking Kenny. They're just quietly, I think, attacking Kenny. Uh, <laughs> but then going back to Harper. Uh, he is stepping down finally. Oh yes, that's where we. That's yes. where that started. I'm going to segue <laughs> back to the segue. He's starting a consulting firm, isn't uh -huh. he? What's he going to consult on? Pretty much whatever he wants, I yeah. would think. But it'll be interesting to see. I mean, Calgary. You want to talk about fickle? I mean, um, Calgarians like having folks in power represent them. It's one thing to vote for the prime minister. 
I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's not like liberals have a traditional base in Stephen Harper's writing. But, you know, having returned to liberals and having got a liberal cabinet minister, I'm going to be really interested to see. I think Calgary, that could be a more surprising race than one might expect. It'd be really interesting to see who comes forward as candidates for both the conservatives and the liberals in that riding. Yeah, fair enough. And also, uh, to go back to Kenny, uh, <laughs> I'm going to segue back to the PC <laughs> leadership race. Uh, we're still waiting to see. Like, there'll be a leadership race starts October 1st. So we haven't seen anybody else come into that race. It's right now, it's just Jason Kenny on his own out there because there's been no race, of course, um, called until October 1st. But we're hearing names out there you know, from, from Calgary and uh, from the rest of Alberta. I think that's going to be a really big important issue, of course, for the PCs moving forward. No one's really paying much attention to it now because Kenny's on his own driving around the province, trying to get headlines. But we, we'll see what actually happens later this summer as to who's actually going to get into the race and how many of them. Sandra Jansen, for example, uh, PCMLA, has said that she's interested. Richard Starkey, another uh, MLA. Uh, we've got uh, other names coming forward as well. You know, I even heard that Stephen Mandel was interested in coming back potentially. Diana McQueen, former Minister of Environment. There are a lot uh, of names out Mi there right Michael now. Michael Oshry, city councillor, who's been yes. a bit chippy with Kenny on, on Twitter in the last little bit. Makes me think maybe that's not just a... Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you got uh, uh, Harmon Candola. He was a candidate for the PCs uh, in Edmonton. Uh, so we got names coming out, uh, not only here, but also in Calgary. So that's going to be interesting as well. That This will not be... Uh, a walk in the park, potentially, as Jason Kenny called it. So much fun stuff coming up. So, speaking of fun stuff, let's move to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery. Uh, where are we going to start with Keith? Let's start with Me? you. Me? Okay. All right. Yeah. He's uh, just I'm, sitting on the end, Len. Uh, I always just... I, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. No, down at I'm, the I'm super interested in, in what you've got to say is what I meant there. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. That's exactly how I took that. Yeah. Um, so, I am recommending a piece by our former colleague, Miriam Ibrahim. Uh, Burkini ban shows that Muslim women aren't welcome in public spaces, published in the Ottawa Citizen. Uh, as anyone who has met Miriam, you will know that uh, she is full of uh, very, uh, very strong opinions, uh, but as a reporter, she did not get to express them, at least not publicly. Uh, but in this piece, she certainly does, and she it's very does. well written. Yeah, definitely worth a read. And, and, and worth noting that the, uh, the court in France this morning, uh, Friday morning, overturned the Burkini ban. Uh, so that's a huge victory, I think, for, for women and for uh, political tolerance. Yeah, awesome. Uh, Paula. All right, so my suggestion... I was staring at you, but didn't <laughs> actually say anything. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I posted this article to, to my uh, journal Facebook feed earlier this week, and Keith suggested that I should make it my good stuff because it's such a good piece, even though it's not really very political. It's a wonderful piece from The New Yorker uh, by Nick Palmgarten called The Most Exclusive Restaurant in America. And it starts off as Palm Gartner goes to visit this restaurant in upstate New York, which uh, has a wait list to 2025 for reservations and serves the most exquisite food that's all sort of uh, natural, back to the land, locally sourced, exquisite little tiny plates. Um, I think a tasting plate is $400 a head. And so he goes and, and, and the food is amazing. And afterwards he starts to think, wait a minute, this is a really tiny space and th there's nobody else around and he won't let me talk to any of his suppliers and all the celebrities that he says ate at his restaurant never 
eight here. And it's it's really interesting because he comes to the conclusion after a while this is all kind of a really complicated con. Not that the guy can't cook, but that the whole mystique of this restaurant in the woods there where no one can get a reservation uh, may not be accurate because maybe there isn't really a restaurant. Uh, anyway, it's an amazing piece of writing. I can hardly wait for the indie movie inspired by this piece. Mine's from The New Yorker as well, actually. It's called Making Bicycles in Detroit is an Uphill Ride. And it's a really cool piece about a company that's trying to get back to making bicycles in Detroit, which apparently used to be a thing. I did not realize that. So it's a New Yorker piece by... Omar Mahalam. Omar Mahalam. This is this is the this is the local boy makes good angle because Omar is uh, a sometime contributor to Post Media, the editor of the Yards, Edmonton-based freelance writer. Is he from Edmonton? He's from Edmonton. Yeah, that's why this is cool. What? And and the See, article, I didn't know that. I just the, thought it was a cool thing. And the reason that uh, that Omar in Edmonton is writing this piece of the New Yorker is that the guy who started the bicycle company is from Calgary. So, right. Yeah. So that is that is the Alberta connection. But it is kind of nice to see um, somebody from here writing in the New Yorker, and so we can say that we've run some of his stuff in in our paper too, in in the past. Yeah. So. And I was I was in Detroit last year actually, and I'm really excited to to actually go back to Detroit and maybe pick up a bicycle. Graham, you got anything for us this week? Yes, I do. It's a speech by Hillary Clinton yesterday, Thursday outlining all the racist comments from Donald Trump. Uh, so it was a really amazing speech because she just deconstructs his new narrative, that's today's word, about how he's not a racist. And she goes back over the years, not just him as a, 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 politi- a political candidate, it's him as a business person and over a landlord the years. And a yeah, a landlord and his father and a landlord and the things they did with uh, low-rent uh, housing, if I can call it that, in, in uh, New York. And just how he has a track record of being a racist and a bigot that goes on and on and on and on and on. And so this is, people say this is a really important speech that's just aimed at the moderate Republicans. Very much because so. Because he's aiming at the very same crowd, and she's trying to say, well, hold on for a second. Uh, this is what he's like. And she also, uh, in his speech, talked about um, previous Republican candidates, McCain and uh, Romney, and said that they were decent people who disagreed with Democrats on policy, not on race. So anyway, uh, Vox.com has a story plus the entire transcript. Yeah, it's fascinating because she says nice things about Ted Cruz and nice things about (laughs) Paul Ryan and nice things about George W. Bush um, and, and basically calls on sort of moderate Republicans and says, I will be a president for you. Well, it's, it's quite the thing. Uh, my weekend is going to be so full of reading things. That's so great. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. Um, Graham, Thompson, Tomo, G, to- G Tom, Tommy G? Tomo G. Tomo my G. mother called me that growing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Paula, Paula Koala, Keith, I still don't have one for you. I'm tougher. Yeah, you'll have to come up with yeah, something. Yeah, Keith Ryan. And of course, uh, photographer Greg Southam, who is filming some of this so you can see our mugs online. Don't look at mine. I've had no sleep. Anyway, you don't need to know that. Uh, But you do need to know that you can head to edmontonjournal.com to pick up more of our Press Gallery episodes. Also, you can um, get this on iTunes, the Journal's SoundCloud channel, and TuneIn Radio. So we'll join you again this time next week in the Press Gallery. Press Gallery.